Well, good afternoon. It is great to see you all. I do look forward to these times. I hope that you do too. Um, it's great to be together. It's great to be looking at, at God's Word together. And I want to add my welcome to the welcome that Ian gave us already. It is great to see you all. I want to start today with an idea. I'm not sure who said this, but someone once said that the greatest freedom is having nothing to prove. The greatest freedom is having nothing to prove. It's a powerful idea. And it makes me wonder if the opposite is true. We've just sing it we've just been singing there about chains falling off. I wonder if it's also true that the strongest captivity and the, the, the darkest prison that we can live in is to be dominated by what other people think of us. Many of us come to believe quite early on in life, don't we, that the way to be accepted and even to be loved is to perform well. And so we connect what we do with how much we're loved and under the surface, maybe no one even knows what goes on under this service, our lives become a kind of driven thing in which we're trying to gain approval through what we do. I think we know in our heads that this is wrong, but we can't help it sometimes. I know I can't. We know that it's relentless and exhausting and deep down we fear that Whatever we do, it might not ever be enough. Even when someone compliments us on a job well done, our minds within a nanosecond are moving on to the next task. Will I be able to please these people again next time? Which really means, I think there was a song in the 1960s that went along this line, will they still love me tomorrow? I won't sing it. Hooray! If you've been with us over these last few weeks, you'll know that we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And today is especially significant because we're moving into a new section in chapter 18, which we're going to start unpacking under the heading, Life in the family. Uh, we set this up a little as we wrapped up last, last week, last time, by saying two simple things. The church of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God in this world, is not a business or any other kind of system or organisation. It is primarily a family, loving family, and second, this is a family that should naturally look like and smell like Jesus himself. There should be a family likeness. This is a family that should look like and smell like Jesus. Matthew built his gospel around five blocks of extended teaching. This is the fourth of five. And in this section, Jesus speaks for this whole chapter about how his friends should relate to one another in this family. 
how they get on as a group as they rub shoulders together life in the family we're going to slow down a little bit over the next uh, few weeks we're going to draw out five important themes over the next five weeks and the first thing that Jesus highlights here about life in his family is the absolutely vital need for his friends to know that they have nothing to prove because they are loved. Jesus, I think here, longs for them to gladly embrace the freedom and the humility that he himself enjoys as they live together. Jesus develops this idea, Just in, we're just going to look at the first four verses. If you've got a Bible, it'd be great if you can have that open on the page or on a phone or, or whatever. We're going to look at the first four verses. And Jesus kicks all of this first theme off by what I want to call an inappropriate question. In, math, in, in, in verse 1, Matthew tells us that the disciples came to him. And asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We'll get to why this is a poor question in a minute. But in other ways, I, I think this is a totally understandable question. Over this last period of time, we, the disciples have begun to see more clearly that Jesus is God's promised king. And this is big. This is a big deal. And they're his close friends. And their thoughts are naturally going to how things will play out. We know now, Jesus, that you are the Messiah. Some of us have seen your glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. We've seen the miracles you've done. We've seen the teaching that you've given but who is the top disciple is what they want to know. Jesus, give us a name. Give us a name. Which one of us is going to be your right-hand man? Perhaps the previous chapter had kicked off this discussion when Jesus singled Peter out and paid his tax. What about the other 11? Peter's been pretty prominent, actually, in the last few chapters. He's, Peter is always the first to speak, often with his foot planted firmly in his mouth. We heard him in chapter 16 confess Jesus to be the Son of God. And when Jesus then said that he would build his church on this rock, was that rock Peter? Is Peter the one, Lord? But actually, you, you might know that it was Peter's brother, Andrew, that Jesus had originally called first. And Peter is only here because Andrew introduced him. Although Andrew was quieter and less in your face than his brother, maybe Andrew secretly felt that being there first counted for something. You ever feel like that? And then we have Judas who seems to have been the treasurer for this group. We all know how that played out. But at this moment, looking after the cash is a pretty important job. 
And being Rishi is, is like close second to being Boris, isn't it? Maybe our minds could also go to John, who describes himself in his gospel later as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Does this kind of warm affection imply that John was such a close favourite of Jesus that he was therefore in line for the top job? Certainly John and his brother James's mother felt that they deserve something because just a couple of chapters further on, she comes to Jesus privately in chapter 20 and asks Jesus whether James and John, her sons, could both sit next to Jesus in his cabinet. And the other ten were absolutely furious. Who is the greatest? Tell us, Jesus, which one of us will get the top job? I want you to notice that in verse 1, Matthew says, at that time. He says this a lot in Matthew, doesn't he? At that time. I think Matthew wants us to see something of the timing, the bad timing of their question. And it connects what they're asking now with what has just gone on before. And part of what has just gone on before is Jesus predicting his own death. Look back with me at chapter 17 and verse 22. When this group came together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, man is going to be betrayed into the hands of man. The son of man, that's a title for the Messiah. The son of man is going to be handed over into the hands of man. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. At this time, the disciples asked Jesus, who's the greatest? What Matthew is highlighting is that as Jesus speaks of his devastating demotion, his disciples are, are all angling for a promotion. Jesus is talking about going down and they're all preoccupied with moving up. Jesus is giving up status and they are all trying to get status. We, we live in Yorkshire here. Jesus is heading south on the M1 and the disciples are in a minibus heading north. Top speed. They're, they're going in different directions here. At first, they are filled with grief, but it doesn't seem to take long for their ambition to trump their sadness. It, it reminds me of, of when sometimes a tragedy happens during an election campaign and all the candidates cut out the trash talk for like 24 hours. Jesus talks about being killed and there's a respectful silence for a few hours. And then the battle seems to recommence when they ask, which one of us is the greatest? The timing is bad, but there's a couple of other reasons 
that I think this question is inappropriate to. First of all, there is something here, I think, of impatience in their question. What I mean by that is that whilst they now know that there is a glory to come that is awesome, they seem to forget that before they get to that, there is a cross to endure. Jesus himself knows the great reward, the unspeakable reward of what he will experience. But he knows that he will wear a bloody crown of thorns before he receives the forever crown of heaven. So part of the problem here with this question at this moment is that they seem to want the glory but they want to skip the hard yards. They seem to want the wages before they've done any work. They seem to want a medal before the battle has been fought. They want to arrive at the destination without doing the journey. I've been challenged by this this week. Sometimes we can be so full of ourselves. <laughs> can't we? And we foolishly dream of flying up and above the clouds instead of doing the ordinary little everyday things that God calls us to do today. In trying to be a somebody, we can be so fickle in wanting shortcuts, instant success, And the simple, everyday, unsung faithfulness of doing what is right in front of us somehow feels too boring or too beneath us to be glorious. But secondly, I want to suggest that there's a particular kind of self-interest here too. This is a team. This, This is a bunch of friends. This views this as a family. And instead of being glad to work together and to share the rewards, to share the glory, they're preoccupied with trying to outdo one another. They want to know who the top dog is because none of them want to be on the bottom. And their individual competitiveness has strangled the life out of any possibility of teamwork here. If we could press the pause button on this scene and climb into it, and and, and they're all frozen, and then we could talk to them one by one, we could ask them all, would you be pleased if someone else did well? Or would you be secretly wishing that it was you? It'd be interesting to go around, wouldn't it, and ask them all, that question. It's an inappropriate, understandable, but inappropriate question. Who's the greatest Jesus? Give us a name. Well, let's notice second. I'm fed up with the bad stuff now, so let's get to the good stuff. <laughs> the second, Jesus gives a totally unexpected answer. Verse 2 
as it stands, could not be simpler than it is. Jesus doesn't answer their question at first. There must have been kids in and around Peter's house in Capernaum. And so into this group of alpha males, waiting with bated breath for the slightest clue, which one of us is it? Jesus calls a toddler to come over and join them. I want to say the banter is strong with this one. Jesus essentially says, here's my glamorous assistant. (laughs) Who do you think the world would put forward as an example of the greatest? Who would you suggest? Who's the greatest? It's a good bet that it would be based on performance of some kind in some realm, isn't it? Jesus quite literally throws all of that out of the window. The disciples are thinking in terms of influence and importance and power and status and Jesus points them to a toddler. Now, it is possible that we might take from this that we should seek to emulate being childlike. And what does that look like? Being, being trusting, receptive, straightforward and simple and teachable and all those kinds of good things. But as any parent will know, it can often be the case that children are anything but these sweet traits. We do love our precious children, but there can be seasons when they are demanding and stubborn and apparently completely unteachable. I'm not sure that this is about children being inherently humble because sometimes they're they're not. I, I think this is about status. Jesus brings in a child here because a child has no particular power or social significance. Children don't lead armies. They don't run investment banks. Maybe they do a better job, I don't know. They're not politicians. When Jesus wants to signpost what his kingdom, in brackets, his family is like, he chooses the weakest, most vulnerable, least significant, in one sense, human he can find. And he isn't pointing so much to their inherent qualities, but their small size. Jesus isn't saying here that his followers should never be in positions of influence. The issue is that pursuing power and status does not make anybody a somebody. Having introduced his assistant then here, Jesus then gives two separate answers to their question. In verse 3 and verse 4, what I think Jesus calls for a distinctive attitude and a deliberate choice. Now, whenever Jesus says, I tell you the truth, what, what, what he means is, listen up. This is important. Jesus says, 
In the older days of the Bible, this would read, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Jesus is saying, prick up your ears, this matters. And when Jesus says, in verse 3, you must change. Don't, don't skip over that. When Jesus says, you need to change. It literally means to turn around. It means to start again. It means to think again. It means go right back to the drawing board. Your whole value system is upside down and back to front. So for Jesus, this is both emphatic and important and radical. The Euro Football Championship started this weekend. And um, I'm not about to give any spoilers in. Um, but here's an illustration of what Jesus says here. The disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, who's the best player in our team? That's the question. Who's the best player in our team? In verse 3, Jesus responds with, if that's your question, you're not even in the team. You didn't even make the bench. You're not in the squad. <laughs> it's a slightly weird comment, isn't it? Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. If that's your question, you're not even in the team. The reason it's weird is because these men are not outside the kingdom. These are his friends. In chapter 16, Jesus already told them that he's given them the keys to the kingdom. So I don't think we can press what Jesus says here too far and draw conclusions about their individual salvation or status here. But Jesus is making clear that he is playing by very different rules to the rest of the world and that there's no room for complacency with any of this. This isn't a sidebar issue. This is crucial and central. An impatient and selfish concern for status is totally incompatible with being in this family. If that's your question, you, you need to go back to the drawing board because you're not even in the team if that's how you think. Jesus is saying... This is my family and it's not how we roll. <laughs> so get on board. <laughs> secondly, distinctive attitude, but secondly, deliberate choice. Jesus then develops this in verse 4 with a further comment. Whoever humbles himself like this child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I think in one way, Jesus is really saying, stop looking through the telescope the wrong way around. You're, you're, you're looking through the telescope through the big end <laughs> rather than the little end. You think that greatness consists of climbing up. But in my kingdom, the further down you go, the greater you are. Charles Spurgeon it was a great preacher in years gone by, said, What a kingdom this is, in which every man ascends by willingly going down 
What a great comment that is. What a kingdom this is in which every man ascends by willingly going down. In this kingdom, it isn't the survival of the fittest or that the strongest or the fastest or the loudest or the angriest get to the front ahead of everyone else. Isn't it true that we find it hard to imagine or think of humility or weakness or vulnerability being anything other than things to be ashamed of? But Jesus here is urging his friends to replace their assertiveness with willing submission. So the first theme I want to suggest in this chapter on relationships is that life in the family requires humility. But the question is, how can we, how can they do this? How can we be free of the prison of trying to be a somebody and living with that kind of captivity to what other people think of us, approval? We're still living in a way that even though we know this is not true, that this is how we live in relation to God. I, I want to suggest as we wrap up too, we, we need to keep two things in mind. First of all, you and I need to know the Father's love. None of this is possible. I think the implication under this is that unless we are relying on the love and grace of our Father in heaven towards us, we, we, we can't even begin this, this journey. I think the image of a child standing here in the middle of this group of men signifies smallness but also preciousness. By using a child, Jesus invites his friends, in a sense, to see that they're not as important as they think they are, and yet that they are also more precious and loved than they think they are. What a paradox that is. The world doesn't revolve around you, <laughs> and yet you are loved. <laughs> So these guys don't have to strive to be a somebody. They have nothing to prove because they are already known and loved and cared for by their Father in heaven. During this past week, Jane and I were talking about this passage and Jane shared with me a very moving story that she had read. Uh, we, we spent a few minutes looking for the book and I found the book. Um, this story was about a missionary who was returning to America after working in Africa as a missionary for 40 years. And as the boat pulled into New York Harbour, 
this missionary wondered if there would be anybody to meet him. And as they got nearer, he heard a little band playing from a distance. And he thought to himself, how lovely that someone has taken the time to put a little welcome party together for me after 40 years on the mission field. But as they got closer, the music got louder and he realised it was a huge band and all the passengers were delayed as, as President Roosevelt of the US was led off the ship to this great fanfare. He had been on safari in Africa for four weeks. And when this missionary finally stepped onto the harbour, there was no one there to meet him. And he went to his hotel and fell by his bed crying. Lord, the president has been on holiday for four weeks and gets a massive band. I've been in Africa for 40 years and there was no one to welcome me home. And then he felt a little voice whisper in his heart, you're not home yet. You're not home yet. Maybe some of you need to hear that your father in heaven loves you. In this family, you have nothing to prove. There's no need to strive to earn it. And even if, I hope they do, but even if no one ever acknowledges what you do, your father knows. He sees. And Jesus has already said several times in Matthew, great is your reward in heaven. If we're going to be humble in this family you have to know the father's love secondly you have to marvel at your savior's example do you know why jesus is the greatest preacher of humility because he is the greatest practitioner of it but the reason jesus humbles himself the reason Jesus goes down the steps into the cellar, if you like, is for them and for us. The great king chooses, chooses. This is his instinctive attitude and his deliberate choice. He chooses to die the death that you and I deserve to bring us into his family. He saves his family through his cross. So it can never make sense for his family to be fighting. It can never make sense for his family to be competing. Let me close our time this afternoon with a passage that some commentators think may have been one of the first Christian hymns. You'll find it in Philippians chapter 2. You have to marvel at your Saviour's example. 
Paul writes, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's bow. Father, some of us have been on a treadmill feeling that we have something to prove. Some of us are tired. Some of us have kind of died inside because we've forgotten that we have a Father who loves us. And we've lost sight of marvelling at the Saviour's example. Father, would you, would you help us today? Would you, would you draw near to us? Would you wrap your loving arms around us and reassure us that we have nothing to prove? And may that truth help us here in this specific church family. May it help, help us not to be asking who is the greatest, but to be serving and loving, welcoming and blessing one another. Help us not to compete, but to serve. Help us to be glad when others succeed. Help us not to be bitter when our efforts are not acknowledged. We pray that you would root our hearts in your fatherly love and care would you bless us and we we ask this humbly in the powerful and good and mighty name of jesus amen